This is the fourth chapter of the book, Find It, The Vital Signs of the Spiritual Life, and it is the fourth section, which is called The Basic Nature of Relationship. I want to read to you some words from the physicist, Carlo Rivelli. There is nothing mysterious about this. The world is not divided into standalone entities. It is we who divide it into objects for our convenience. A mountain chain is not divided into individual mountains. It is we who divide it up into parts that strike us as in some way separate. A countless number of our definitions, perhaps all of them, are relational. A mother is a mother because she has a child. A planet is a planet because it orbits a star. A predator is such because it hunts prey. A position in space is there only in relation to something else. Even time exists only as a set of relations. According to this physicist, Carlo Rivelli, relationship is at the very fabric of creation. We are known by others and by God, and we know ourselves as we relate to others. I am a mother because of my relationship with my three sons. I am a priest because of my relationship with my parishioners. I am a writer because you are reading these words or listening to me talk. We become who we are by relating to others. Just as we are known by the way we relate to the world around us, so we learn most from our relationships, particularly the relationships of those closest to us. Love is the greatest catalyst for growth. Our need to love more and better pushes us to redefine our relationships and to become better people. I have struggled to be a good parent. I have made so many mistakes. But being a mom has made me a better person. It has forced me to put someone's needs ahead of my own. My relationship with my sons has driven me to get up in the middle of the night, to buy foods I don't want, to clean and cook and earn money, and to learn to discipline and then to learn to let go. For all the mistakes I have made, I am clear about one thing. Becoming a mom made me grow in ways I never knew that I could. And this is true of all relationships that are founded in love. The most important aspect in a loving relationship is emotional honesty. We must have the courage to tell each other the truth, not in a harsh way, but to be honest about what we really need and want. My marriage ended for many reasons, but chief among them was my inability to truly say how I felt and that is not a mistake that I will ever make again. Now, in this new relationship that I am blessed to have found, I am trying very hard to be honest about how I feel, even if the feeling is selfish or silly. For how can another person love me if I don't let them know how I feel? To be clear, acknowledging a feeling does not mean that you need to act upon it or give it much weight, or more than it deserves at least. If you feel annoyed with someone, you don't have to act upon that feeling. 
If you feel lazy or sad or angry, it is your responsibility to manage those feelings and not let them take over or act on impulse. But at the same time, if your loved one asks you how you're feeling, you should tell the truth. They probably know the answer anyway, or they wouldn't ask. And isn't it refreshing to admit that you can have a feeling and it's not the end of the world? Feelings don't have to define us and they don't have to dictate our behavior. They just are there, but they should not be ignored. Give them their due. Acknowledge their presence, yes, but then move on. Our feelings, especially in relationship to our loved ones, can tell us a great deal about the lessons we need to learn. They are messengers, teachers, invitations to learn and grow. But feelings are not our masters, and they're not going to kill us. They don't have to be scary, and they don't always have to be alleviated. They just need to be heard. If relationships are the building blocks of creation, then we must establish relationships that center around our love of God. And this is where the group comes in. We cannot fully understand ourselves as followers of Jesus without a group of fellow disciples to walk with us. As Jesus said, where two or three are gathered in my name, I am in the midst of them. This is a radical thought, since some of the greatest saints were in essence isolated individuals, such as the Desert Fathers or Dame Julian of Norwich, who shut herself in a room attached to a church and lived there her entire life alone. But even those solitary souls had people occasionally come to them for prayer or counsel, and they were aware of, and in a sense in relationship with, the world. The mind is tricky. It is very hard to battle the insecurities of the mind without a group of friends. My doctor friend says that there is an old saying in medicine, never worry alone. Never worry alone. We need one another to become the fullness of who we are called to be, to discern God's will and to lead healthy lives. I love to think of the relationship between Jesus and his mother. In the Gospel of John, they are at a party together. Jesus has long since reached adulthood, and his disciples are with him, so he must have begun to teach and preach, but his mom is also at the party. Now, that must have been uncomfortable. And when the wine runs out, his mother says these simple words to him. They have no wine. Now, Jesus knows exactly what his mother means with these words because he reacts to her. Woman, what have you to do with me? He asks. That translation sounds harsher today than it was meant. Every man called anyone who was female woman. Don't ask me why, but it wasn't an insult at the time. Jesus is not being harsh necessarily, but he is clearly aggravated. He has a feeling of annoyance. <laughs> She is pushing him to do a miracle, and he is resisting her. But Jesus does do what she asks. Maybe she gave him that mother look. Maybe she didn't even have to give him the mother look. But it was her nudge that brought him into the fullness of his ministry in the Gospel of John. It was the first sign that he performed. Now, that is the kind of relationship that I'm talking about. 
when someone else helps you become who you were meant to be. And here he was, the son of God, and he still needed a nudge. How much more do we desperately need one another? The hardest part of being a parish priest is to know just how profoundly and deeply people could be fed by just talking to each other once a week, but they claim to be too busy or they just don't want to commit. On Sundays, I will look out at the pews and see people sitting close to one another, a set of parents whose adult child committed suicide, sitting close to another couple whose adult child also died in the same way, in the same year, and they don't even know the wounds that they share. It drives me crazy. They don't understand how they could care for one another and walk alongside one another if only they discovered each other. But they will tell me that they don't have enough time to meet or they haven't gotten around to it. What could be more important? What could be more worth the time? I do know that once a person tastes a true discipleship group, I have never known a single person to regret joining. Not one. It is that good. But in order for a small group or discipleship group to be truly a holy relationship, or the other word we use is community, it must have certain specific ingredients. First of all, any group must be confidential. There can be no gossip or sharing of personal information. This boundary must be upheld or the group will wound itself. There can be no truly honest sharing or vulnerability without this very important protection. All must agree and maintain this confidentiality. Secondly, the group must meet regularly at a set time, and all have to come. It has to be a top priority. There can't be continuity if people do not make this commitment. The time must be protected, stable, and sacred. Everyone in the group needs to be able to count on this. This is when temptation rears its ugly head once more. Amidst the busyness of life, our minds will play tricks on us and convince us that getting our hair done or making an appointment at the dentist is more important than our group time. We must be strong and trust that this time is sacrosanct. We must make a covenant with our group members for the group to be a top priority in our lives or it will not work. There is no other option. The group time must center around God. In other words, it cannot be just about sharing your lives. God must be an integral part of the conversation each week. We must agree to support each other in our life with God. What has God called you to do? What is God saying to you? These are the questions that must be addressed. For more guidance on meetings and structure, the best recommendation that I have is Reverend Christopher Barton's book, The Restoration Project. Let me make this clear. I do not believe that it is possible to discern God's will for your life without a group or community to assist you. You simply cannot do this alone. It is impossible. It's like a dog trying to lift itself up by pulling on its tail. You don't have the perspective or ability to see yourself clearly. It is just the state of the human being. We need one another. We were meant to live in relationship with other human beings. Only in these relationships 
can we reflect the image of God who is relationship?